Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. We did, but honestly, I was left with more questions than answers, Tony. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. And I'm Michael Costa, comedian from The Daily Show. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1. Our F1 102, if you will. And get all of the answers. All of them? Listen to Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali in 1988, and surprisingly, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story, and also stories of others touched by the champ. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the perfect place to buy and sell tickets. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix, and we have a terrific podcast for you today. Bobby Marks, the front office insider over at The Vertical, the former assistant general manager of the Brooklyn Nets, he drops by, and we talk about the futures of Charlotte, Indiana, and the L.A. Clippers, as well as what's going on in Sacramento and Los Angeles with the Lakers. We'll also check in with Costa Kufos, the Sacramento Kings forward, and he'll tell us about his experience in a dysfunctional Sacramento Kings situation last year and about his journey from Ohio State into the NBA. All that next on The Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. Yahoo Sports presents The Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. Powered by digital media. Find your voice. And now, your host, Chris Mannix. Welcome in another episode of The Vertical Podcast. I'm Chris Mannix. A lot to get to today. We got Costa Kufos, the former Sacramento Kings forward. Played a eight years in the NBA. Played at Ohio State. We'll talk to Costa about his career and some of the things that went on last year in Sacramento. But to start, I want to begin with what we saw over the weekend. And in particular, I want to kind of move it forward a little bit. I want to advance the conversation and talk about what happened and what is going to happen with Charlotte, the Indiana Pacers, and the LA Clippers. Talk more about that. Let's bring in Bobby Marks, the front office insider over at the Vertical. Bobby, obviously, the longtime assistant general manager with the Brooklyn Nets as well. Bobby, when you look at the situations in Charlotte, Indiana, and the Clippers, which one of those teams are you most optimistic about going forward? 
Well, that's a loaded question, <laughs> and I think it's because all all each team kind of controls what they want to do. I think right now, if you're asking upside, long term, it's Charlotte with an asterisk just because of where their their situation is free agency, and the majority of of that roster is is free agents, and what Rich Cho is going to have to do is prioritize which free agency he's going to want back. If you're looking at teams under contract, of course it's the Clippers. You know, if the decision is to retain Griffin and Paul, you know, you've got DeAndre Jordan and everything. Each team is a little bit different. You know, Rich Cho is going to have a hard time in, in Charlotte, you know, and to keep that nucleus intact is going to be challenging. You've got, um, you know, Batum's a free agent, Al Jefferson, Courtney Lee, Marvin Williams, uh, Jeremy Lin's got an opt-out. He's got non-bird rights if he opts out. To, but So to try to fit all that into the puzzle is going to be really challenging for Charlotte and everything. All right, let's stay with Charlotte then, and specifically with Nick Batum. What's his value now on the open market? I've read some places that the suggestion has been he is a max or a close-to-max contract guy now at this stage. Well, and I hate the word max, because when I, when I hear max players, I think of, you know, all-stars, franchise-type players, yeah. the Kevin Durant, the, you know, those type, you know, the Kawhi Leonard, you know, those guys. And it, we're going to see max contracts almost by default this summer based on, um, you know, where the cap is. And, you know, and, I, and what I've seen, you know, working in the league for so long is sometimes, you know, teams cannot help themselves as far as, you know, with their restraints as far as what they pay him. But, yeah, I mean, uh, Batum's number, uh, his max number is going to be around, you know, 24, 25 million. I could see him getting anywhere north of 20. Uh, he's still in a great age, and he's in his, you know, late 20s. He's still in the prime of his career. He had a, one of his best years in, in uh, Charlotte this past year. Lack of wings on the open market. He's unrestricted. Um, so, yeah, his number is going to be certainly pretty high. Is he a must-re-sign for the Hornets this offseason? No, he isn't. And I think you know a lot of it will depend on what uh, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist happens with him you know, from that injury and everything. They almost duplicate each other. You saw during the, during the year when Kidd-Gilchrist was healthy, you kind of played each other side by side. If Batum signed elsewhere, it's not, it's not a, a franchise killer. It's more of almost like a luxury right now. So that's something that Rich is going to have to weigh there as far as, you know, who out of that group, if you're going to rank them priority-wise, if it's Lee, if it's Jefferson, you know, as we, we talked, you know, Jeremy Lin, it's going to be real challenging to bring him back. He's got non-bird rights and everything. It's, it's a matter of where, you know, you almost have to have put a certain number with Batum and, and kind of stick with it. If this had been a year ago, I would say Al Jefferson would qualify as a must-resign. But now... Is the same sort of sense there? I mean, I feel like Al, his role in the offense certainly was a little bit different. They diversified more offensively this year. Is he in the same kind of situation where he might have been a year ago? Well, what helped Jefferson actually was the, was the knee surgery he had mid year. Kind of almost like he came back with a second, you know, second yeah. and everything. But he's not the player. He's got a lot of miles on those tires. Um, you know, from being in uh, Utah, Boston, you know, coming out of high school and everything. So, and he's, this is probably his last long, you know, his last contract. So I'm sure his agent is going to be looking at a, at a big number. I, I don't think you need to go out and overpay him, um, especially how Charlotte plays. You know, he became, you know, 
real valuable in the playoffs there with him and Whiteside and everything. But to, to pay an Al Jefferson $14, $15 million, if that's the number for him, even if it's on a three-year contract, I, I just don't – that's not a that's not a good value for me. Yeah. I mean, can how do they survive, though, the loss of a guy like him? Because offensively, when they get into the half court, he's their guy. I mean, they, they've done a few different things this year, but – I mean, he's been the guy they just played dump and chase with for, for several years under Steve Clifford. Well, especially where we've seen with Zeller, Kaminsky, some of those guys are, are not really in that position where they can play you know, 30, 35 minutes a night. So that's going to be a... That's going to be the hard call for uh, you know for the Hornets and everything with especially with uh, with with Jefferson Hall you know they've got Hawes you know I'm not sold on him either um, you know it's it's a matter of you know what their budget is you know going forward um, as we've talked about with those free agents you know every team's got a budget I mean maybe, well actually maybe some teams don't but <laughs> most teams do have a budget where where they can pay and with, even with the cap going up and and where the TV money is coming in you got to weigh your your ticket revenue. And all that and everything. Um, but the one thing that I do know is that when you get that taste of playoff success, even if you do lose in that first round, you never want to be where the teams are going to be, you know, in a couple of weeks and not on that lottery platform and everything. So to kind of build off the, you know, the 48 wins is, is something that, that Charlotte needs to do. I tell you who they got to bring back. They got to bring back Jeremy Lin. I mean, Jeremy Lin, he's got that player option. If he opts out, they've got to find a way to sign him because he was really good for them this year, Bobby. I mean, Coming off the bench most of the season, numbers were solid, 11.5 points, something like 41% shooting, which isn't great, but he was I mean, he was a factor for them. I mean, he was one of the top six men in the game all year long. Losing him, I think, would be a body blow. Well, he, he had a huge role this year, and he's going to be really challenging, and it, a lot of it's going to be based on timing uh, where Charlotte goes because of... When you look at their roster and their and their cap sheet, you know they've got such high cap holds on you know on the big names with Batum and and, and Jefferson. Courtney Lee's got a really high cap hold. Um, you know uh, Jefferson has one. Uh, Marvin Williams has a high cap hold too. And the the hard part with Lynn is is that he you know he signed at such a low number, right around two million dollars. He's got an opt out. He's got non bird, meaning basically. Charlotte's going to have to use cap space, so mm-hmm. you're almost going to have to figure out what you want to do with those those you know three or four free agents in, in front of him before you can kind of circle back with Lynn. And what's going to be hard is that he might be off the market by the time that happens, especially where the point guards are in in July. All right, let's stay in the East and move to Indiana, where there are a lot of things we can talk about here. First, I you know the Pacers obviously disappointed to lose in seven games, but. I thought this was a solid season all around for Indiana. They came in with with really no clear identity. They wanted to play small. That didn't really work. But they discover a guy like Miles Turner, who I think is going to be a good player, or to a very good player in the NBA. Paul George comes back and, for most of the season, looks like an MVP candidate. I, I think that Indiana as a whole, like they've got to look at this season as a success. Well, I think if you would ask Larry Bird and Kevin Pritchard in, in you know September or you know October, you know, you're going to win, you know, 44, 45 games, and you're going to lose in seven games in the first round of Toronto, would you sign up for? And I think they probably all would raise their hand and say yes. You know, of course you don't want to lose in the first round, but 
as you said, there was a lot of question marks with this Pacer team coming into the into training camp. You don't you didn't know where Paul George was going to be. You know, he was coming off the injury, the minutes restrictions at the end of the year. You shuffled the, the lineup where you went, you know, with that kind of that small ball um, look with Monte Ellis and Rodney Stuckey, C.J. Miles, George Hill, that group there. You had you had an unproven Miles Turner, you know, a freshman out of out of um, you know Texas. You didn't know where that was. He's you know 19 year old. Um, so there was a lot of uncertainty there. So all considering, yes, I, I, I agree with you that um, that Indiana kind of um, um, you know went beyond expectations. Now, where does this Pacer team go? Can you find a wingman for Paul George? You know, can you know he's in the prime of his career. He's got a couple more years left on his contract. The players they have right now are nice secondary players. You know, the Ellis's, the Stuckies, the um, um, you know CJ Miles, but is there a guy out there that can kind of be, you know, Paul George's running mate? If it's a wing or if it's if it's another big, that's that's going to be the big question. The Pacers, you know, our colleague Adrian Wojnarowski reported that they have not had discussions with Frank Vogel on a contract extension. Does that surprise you? Because to me, Frank Vogel has already proven himself as a high level young head coach who's taken this team and and really done a great job with it over the years. Well, it surprises me just because I look on what what's out there on the market, and if if they did go in a different direction, who is out there? And you yeah. know, some of the better names have already been uh, gobbled up here, and with the, some of the vacancies that are that are open and everything. So it, it, it surprises you just because I don't see anybody a coach waiting in the wings that you know would be a great fit, um, especially you know what what Frank has done, um, you know, in his, in his stay there. Um, you know, since taking over, and, and this year too. I mean, we can we can all magnify all you know every coach in the league as far as some of their flaws and everything. But for for the most part, he's done a really good job. Yeah, and I think Frank is almost in an advantageous situation here because you know, as you mentioned, there's not really a great alternative out there unless, say, Indiana's got their eye on one of the top college coaches. And I don't know if they do, but if they have you know a Jay Wright on their mind or somebody else on their mind to come and bring in at this point. But the the names we know of, you, you can't say that any of those coaches are, are as good or better than Frank Vogel. To me, Vogel has the option now of kind of holding Indiana's feet to the fire a little bit. He can say to them, look, you're going to give me a contract, and you're going to give me a good contract. It's not going to be one of those two-year deals team option. You're going to give me the type of deals that have been doled out over the last few years. It may not be Brad Stevens' six years, but you're going to give me the type of stability and security that I've earned over the last few years. Well, especially where the league is going with contracts in the day and age of you know a coach getting a four-year deal like we saw with Byron Scott and having the years three and four as a you know team option. Uh, if I if I'm advising a coach, that is something I am not uh, you know I'm not going for. Even though I know there's there's only one in thirty of these jobs out there and everything. And no, you you've got to get some some long term. Uh, stability. If you if you are a coach pursuing one of these one of these openings, and we've seen it, we've seen it in Minnesota with Tibbs getting a long term deal. We saw it in Washington five years for for Scotty Brooks and everything. So the the day and age of these these two and three year contracts is uh, it, it's it's hard to swallow if you if you're a coach right now. Yeah, and it makes Brad Stevens the six year contract that Danny Ainge gave him at just over three million dollars per year makes that seem like an absolute bargain right now. I remember people were killing Danny for giving Brad, a college coach, a six-year contract. Right now, as far as coaches go, that's the biggest deal in basketball. 
Well, and it, you know what it is. It's, it's the rookie. It's going to be like the rookie contract on the an escalating salary cap. <laughs> you know, that's what the value is going to be. It's it's a you know a ninety two million dollar cap, and what these rookies are going to get paid, and what Brad Stevens has earned, and everything. He is. Uh, they got him at the right time. At the time, we you know we thought it might have been a little bit high and everything, but he is well below market right now. You know, one thing I was always curious about: other sports, you can tear up a coach's contract and give them a new deal. Not the case in the NBA. Do we ever see that? You can. I mean, you, it's more of a mending than tearing up. Um, you know, you don't want to tear it up because then it, it could give that coach an, an opening, you know, that opening, um, you know, to become a free agent. But, no, you can certainly go the route if you want to uh, amend the contract as far as in, in terms of, of dollars and everything, if, if that's what the, uh, you know, it's different than an actual player. But for, for an employee, um, dollars, years, you know, whatever, you know, benefits you want to do, you can, you can go the amend route. Have you ever seen that done before? I haven't seen a coach get his contract ripped up. I mean, we've seen we see it all the time in college, you know, where guys um uh you know, get a pay raise or get a uh, you know, an extra 5 years or yeah. anything, but I you know, with with the Nets and, and and around the league and everything, I haven't I haven't seen a uh you know, a contract getting ripped up and adding, you know, um, based on, you know, results and everything. I guess you see extensions a lot. You know, you see coaches with one year left on his deal get extensions, right? Yeah, you usually don't want a coach going in as a lame duck, as they as they say. Um, you, you know, that's the one thing. Um, you know, coaches are get get fearful for. So, if you have a guy going into their their last year this year, you usually add you know either another year or two on that. Um, you, we've also seen teams you know getting rid of coaches, them going into that one year. It's more of a clean cleaner split. Uh, and, and everything. If you were evaluating Miles Turner based on what you saw from him this year, how do you project him? Is he, you know, one of those stretch fives at some point? Do you think he's better off playing the four? I mean, how do you project Turner? Well, his maturity is what impressed me on him. And you know, coming out of Texas, there were a lot of um, you know question marks. It wasn't a talent talent based, you know, and it's hard when you're you're so young, you know, you're an eighteen, nineteen year old kid and everything, but. He, his maturity on the court, um, he's got great range. Uh, he's got good size. Um, you know, there are a lot of good, a lot of good elements. Yeah, I would say he's more of a, you know, I guess we can say stretch five. Especially, he fits in where the league is going, where you don't need a, you know, a, a down low, you know, you know, post up five like the old, the old days and everything. Yeah. All right, Bobby, hang tight for a second. I want to tell our listeners here a little bit about Casper mattress. There's nothing better, at least I think, than a good night's sleep. The Casper mattress is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Casper's revolutionized the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with retailers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to the consumer. Hold on to this code, MANIX, while I tell you about the best mattress that's out there. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper. It combines spring latex and supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that got the host to sink right at the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. In fact, it's now the most awarded mattress of the decade. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost $500 for twin-size mattresses, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full, $850 for a queen, and just $950 for a king. So grab one now and get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash Mannix. Terms and conditions apply. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund everything. That's 
everything. Made in America, free shipping, and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash Mannix and using the code Mannix. All right, out in Los Angeles, I guess, you know, I think the Clippers deep down have to kind of be happy that this season is over now. Once Chris Paul and Blake Griffin went down, yeah, you, you always want to win a series and move forward, but what would be the point of going on to Golden State and getting smacked around by one of your arch rivals in four or five games? Where do you look at where, where they are now, Bobby? You've got the core of this team still presumably intact. J.J. Redick had a great year. Where do you see the Clippers right now? Well, I, you know, the... the the argument that you can make as far as, you know, do we, do we break up this group um, and go in a different direction? Do we kind of hit the reset button? I, I'm not in that camp. Uh, and I only look at it as that I, they're, they're, I think their value is so high that I don't think you'll ever get equal value back for a Chris Ball and, and, a, and, a, and a Blake Griffin, um, especially with draft picks. And there's such an unknown with picks and everything, unless, you know, you've got the next LeBron James or Kevin Durant coming out in the draft and everything. And, and I'm I'm in the more of the majority. You know, they to retain this. You know, that that, that group there. Um, what I need, what you need to do is you got to look at their bench and kind of rebuild that bench. And and it's it's so hard when you're dealing from you know only with minimums every year. And you know if you have your tax mid level and it's kind of a rotating door. There's not much stability there. We've kind of seen different different group every year, and you're going to see it again this upcoming summer. So. When there is an injury to a Chris Paul and a, and a Blake Griffin, you know who is that? Who is that player that can kind of step in? And, and that's kind of where we we see it with the Clippers. They've been voided with draft picks. They're, there's only one player on their roster in the last couple of years with C.J. Wilcox. So it's not like they have that next layer of, of young players waiting in the in the wings. And that's kind of that's where I see them. They're a lot similar to like Memphis. Memphis is, is in the same boat as far as from a draft pick standpoint. There's there's not that young infrastructure out there. Um, so for the Clippers, you've got to try to try to rebuild. You know, going that way with uh, with with your bench guys. Yeah. How much is a variable the fact that Chris and Blake can both opt out of their contracts after the next season? Well, you've got to get a comfort level with with them, you know, both guys. And, you know, we always talk about what the value of expirings is. And if you're a team like Boston, if you're going to target, you know, a Chris Paul or Blake Griffin and everything, is that you've got to, you know, you're not going to make any deal for for that short one-year window. You've got to get a comfort level if that player is going to be there for, for more than, you know, more than one year and everything. So, the Clippers are now, you know, operating on a, on a position from strength and everything. So, do you start getting a temperature for either player, you know, this summer to see what is out there um, in case something does come around? The one thing you don't want to do is kind of go through this again, you know, lose in the first round, lose in the second round, and then both players kind of walk for nothing. And that would, of course, it would open up cap space, but then you basically have DeAndre Jordan and, and not much of an infrastructure there. So it's it's kind of a fine line where, where the Clippers have to go here. There are some tough decisions they've got to make this summer. You've got Jeff Green, free agent. Jamal Crawford, free agent. In this marketplace, those guys are going to command salaries beyond their skills, at least in my opinion, and, and Jeff Green would would scare the crap out of me with with his level of inconsistency but i mean how do they because they've got the rights to the bird rights to some of these guys do you just pay them what you got to pay them i mean do you do you let these guys go how would you treat guys like green and uh, crawford 
Well, it, it is tough. I mean, you've got, you got about $82 million in guaranteed contracts, and you're not even factoring those two players you just talked about. Yeah. So, so what is your plan? If, and, and the one thing you don't want to do is lock these guys up to long-term deals and Chris Paul and Blake Griffin leave the next summer, and you're stuck with these guys' contracts and where you could possibly have some cap space to, to build it up. And with, with Crawford, I get, I get a little bit nervous with him. You know, he is up there in, in age. He is more of a specialist. Um, you know, did not have a great playoffs. Um, has is more of a role player. Um, Green, you know, I yeah, he scares me. He scares me to death and everything. And I think you can't look at it that you gave up a first round pick for him that you've got to overpay to bring him back. And I, I understand bird right guys are a lot easier to bring back because you have the advantage and it gives you that advantage. You know, rather than having cap space and everything, but. To get locked into it to a Jeff Green for I don't know eight nine million dollars a year for three or four years I just don't think that's the right direction to go. And Austin Rivers too I think he's got a player option for next year. I mean he's going to command something legit after the way he played in the postseason. He's going to command money after we played in game uh, game six there in Portland and everything. Yeah. With it, how he did and yeah I mean he you know he's got a player option he's right around three million dollars um, he'll definitely opt out and go into the market and. Yeah, I mean, he's going to look out for the best interest of Austin Rivers, not what the best interest of is, is for Doc Rivers and, and, and the Clippers and everything. I mean, that, they're in a, a real, real tricky situation. I, I would imagine, though, Bobby, just based on, based on Doc, like I don't think Doc came to L.A. to be part of any rebuilding effort. I don't believe that he's going to say to you know Gary Sachs and Dave Wall, I'm like, well, let's just let's tear this thing down to build it back up again. I don't think Doc has the patience for that. Not in L.A. He could have had that in Boston. He's not doing it in L.A. No, he could have. He could have He could have done that in Boston and, and kind of been in a better situation than they were right now. But I yeah. don't know if that would have worked hand-in-hand with what Danny Ainge was trying to do there. And I don't, um, you know, sitting through that one year where they, you know, they won, what, 20-plus games after 25, Pierce, yeah. Yeah, after Pierce and Garnett had left and everything. So I don't, I don't know if he would have had the long-term vision to do that. You know, it, it sounds weird, but, it, you know, Griffin and Paul getting hurt almost helps the Clippers because it almost gives them that, you know, ex- that, that excuse, that pass, saying, like, you know, hey, we don't know where this group would have gone if they were healthy. You know, we all know they would have probably lost to, to Golden State in, in, in the next round and everything, but we don't know where it is. And you can make the argument, hey, let's give it one more swing with, with this current group next year. You were around Pierce when he was in Brooklyn. I saw him, obviously, a lot in Boston. Watched him closely last year in Washington. Did you did you see a different player this year? Was this the year that age caught up to Paul Pierce, or was the situation just maybe not what would, would work well for him? I, I think it's a little bit of, of everything. You know, when in, in, in Brooklyn, I mean, his value on the court, off the court, was you know was tremendous, and he, you know, I. I always waited for him to kind of, once Christmas came, you know, lights came on and he turned into a different player. And I thought we started to see that a little bit this year in L.A. where, you know, around Christmas time he started to play better. But then really his role was, you know, diminished and especially, uh, you know, diminished come, come the playoffs. I just don't see that magic anymore. You know, that, you know, especially he had that in Washington, you know, last year where when he was on the court he was such a threat. You know, now he's just another player, player out there. So... You know he's got another year left. Uh, he's got a partial for um, his the second, you know, the third year of his contract. He's got about three and a half million. He's made a lot of money in his career. So where you know where does he go? Where is his head? 
um, you know, if it's going to be in that retirement, you know, they'll walk away from some of that mo- some money. You know, sometimes happiness does outweigh the, uh, you know, the um, you know the money factor. I hope he walks away. I, I hope he just says, you know, I gave it what I had this year because if he comes back next year, I mean, I guess if there's a bench shakeup, he could play a more prominent role with that second unit. But I'm not sure he fits in with the starters right now. And the way they played their second unit in the second half of the season with Green and Wesley Johnson and and Austin and, and that core group, he just didn't fit in with it. That's why he was amazingly a DNP CD in game two of the postseason. He just doesn't he doesn't fit in with this the way the second unit wants to play. I, I just hope he doesn't come back to go through all this again. It just would be it's unbefitting, I guess, for a player of Paul Pierce's caliber to go through something like that, especially when you consider that a guy like Pierce, he's going to have options when his career is over. He can go into television. He can be an executive. If he wants to go back to Boston and be special assistant to Danny Ainge and try to learn to be a GM, he could do that. There's so much more that Pierce can do outside of playing the game. Well, the, the one thing that I learned, and we only had him for a year, is, is just how much he does love the game and you know what... You know, from a stat line, you know, as long as he had some type of impact and had his fingerprints on the game, if it's, you know, from a mentorship, from a, you know, you know, big shot at the end of the game, um, you know, he, you know, that was that was his impact and everything. And I, I agree with you, you know. And we're going to probably see a different bench in, in in Los Angeles next year with how many free agents they have. So where does he fit in with a totally new? you know, dynamic of, of, of players and everything. That's going to be the big question. I want to ask you about the uh, draft combine that's coming up in uh, just a week or so out in Chicago. Usually a big event and still is a big event for NBA teams to check out players, but the event has taken on a different a different scale this year just because all the players that have submitted their names to enter the draft, that's a result of the new rules that are allowing players to both enter the draft process, go to the combine, see where they're at, and then remove their name and go back to college. How has that changed the landscape out there when it comes to the draft combine? Well, it's changed a lot. You've got, you know, you had over, you know, you had 100 and I guess 15, 20 kids put their name in the draft. You know, what, what's happening is it's kind of squeezing out these seniors um, right now because, when you when you pick your combine list, all the teams pick um, you know the names that they want to go see, and then the league kind of uh, formulates it, and, and you know the players with the most votes go. And, and and how teams are doing that right now is that they want to take a look at some of these underclassmen, some of these guys who haven't declared, so they've become more of a priority right now over over that senior. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll get the Denzel Valentine and, and the. Um, and the Buddy Heald and those guys, they'll be out there and everything. But some of those borderline second rounders that are a senior, you're not gonna you're not gonna see them out there and everything. So it it certainly has changed the landscape. Um, you know, it's it's still gonna be the process of where the Brandon Ingrams, the Ben Simmons of those guys, you, you probably won't see them in Chicago for the for their physical and interviews. That's always kind of the norm for those top guys and everything. But what I'm waiting to see is who actually plays in this five on five. You know, who it's it's such a, a draft where um, I guess after the top two, it's it's there's a lot of unknown. What players will be out there playing? Uh, you know, play, playing five on five because last year we only saw. I believe Terry Rozier was the only player that, that went out there and played and got drafted in the, in the first round and everything. So agents do get, get scared off by that process. Oh, I hate that. I hate that they don't play in the five-on-five. Five. And you know nobody's going to play just because ambiguity for some of these guys is better than 
having a bad couple of games playing five on five and have teams say, well, that's the body of work I've seen. I'm going to drop him down on my draft. Board. I think that many agents would rather their guy have that layer of unknown than going through the five on five process. Well, and it, what happens is that players talk, you know, and, yeah. and if, if, if Joe Smith isn't going to play, you know, you know, you know, the player X is going to want to you know, ask his agent, why do I have to play? So players certainly do talk. If I was an agent advising a player, I wouldn't have him play. I'd have him go through the interviews and do the agility stuff and, and the uh, medical and all that, but I wouldn't have him on, on five on five because there are teams out there that are lazy during the year who don't, you know, pay attention much to the scouting element to it that do weigh the, the combine stuff um, a little more heavily. You shouldn't, it shouldn't be that process. Um, but to have it, you know, and go out there and have a bad day or, you know, bad two days, you know, and if that dilutes you, you know, in the, in the, the whole process, then, you know, that could cost you in the long run. How does the NBA respond to this influx of players? I mean, I feel like you've got to have two combines. Have one early May, have one before the lottery, uh, just have a couple of combines, maybe in different cities. Maybe you do it by freshmen and sophomores and juniors. I don't know how you, I don't know how you divvy it up, but you're right. There are players that should be at the combine that need to be at the combine that are not going to be there because of all these underclassmen. Well, when I was in, in Brooklyn, we uh, we ran a combine, a uh, five-on-five. We did it with the Clippers yeah. and, and Rockets and everything, where we, we had a lot of the kids, those second-rounders to undrafted, um, you know, there. And it was a, you know, we had all the teams there, and it was almost a mini version of, of Chicago. And once, once, Chicago, once the NBA went towards the five-on-five format in, in the pre-draft camp, it eliminated, you know, teams from having the right to do that. And that's where I didn't understand. You have this new rule coming in where, you know, players can go, go back to school May, May 25th if they haven't hired an agent. Why wouldn't you have gone the route of having another one of these to kind of work side-by-side with Chicago? Either, you know, you know, next week, you know, you could have it, you know, at a different location. You know, you'll have all the teams who would still go there. Is it maybe the following week to, to do something like that? And I just didn't understand what you have such an influx of, you know, we've got over 115 underclassmen testing the water uh, and everything. Why wouldn't you want to do something, you know, besides the, the actual, you know, combine? Hang on for one more second for me, Bobby, here, because I want to tell our listeners here about Indochino and this new made-to-measure suit that's both affordable and available to the masses. I got mine earlier this week, and I can't imagine not wearing it every time I go out. It's fantastic. It's a made-to-measure suit. feels completely different than the -the off-the-rack suits you usually buy. It feels great. It's one of a kind. It's uniquely yours. It is tremendous. The best suit that I've ever bought and I've ever owned. So suit up. Get a -a one-of-a-kind, made-to-measure suit. Customize the details you want. Pick your lining, your lapels, your personal monogram, so much more. 14 unique measurements go into making a suit that fits you perfectly. And also check out their made-to-measure dress shirts and men's accessories. There's a money-back guarantee, so there's no risk to you there. Today, my listeners get any premium suit for just $399. That's up to 50% off at Indochino.com when entering Mannix at check out plus the shipping totally free there's no reason not to try your first custom-made suit with a deal this good and a suit classic from their premium collection will look good feel good and last that's indochino.com promo code manix for any premium suit with just 399 dollars and free shipping indochino your look your way all right so out in california a couple of the things i wanted to get to here with 
what you got in Sacramento and with the Los Angeles Lakers. And I want to start in Sacramento, which has been casting a wide net when it comes to (laughs) their coaching search. It seems like there is no coach out there that they won't interview. And I think that's probably a good thing. But is there anyone that's, I mean, who are they going to wind up getting? What kind of coach are they going to wind up getting out there? Patrick Ewing, the most recent name, is finally going to get an interview. I feel great for Patrick who's getting an interview. If it turns out to be Sacramento, I'm not sure how good that first job will turn out to be. Well, we've seen pretty much, I guess, every name from uh, assistant coaches to former coaches, guys who have been let go recently, kind of uh, their name in the ring with that with that Sacramento job. And, and I wrote about it when I when we did their summer agenda, you know, last week and everything. Is that if I'm the coach or prospective coach, I'm I'm probably going in there asking more of the questions than being actually interviewed. And I want to know, you know, a lot of things with that direction of that of that team with the roster, cousins. There's a lot of open-ended questions. You know, we've seen a revolving door with the, with the head coach and everything. So. You, you've got an interesting mix with that group. It's, 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 you know, for a team that hasn't made the playoffs, it's more of a veteran-laden team. You don't have many young players with, with how they are. You've, you know, you've got Macklemore and, and Coley Stein, but you know, Cousins, Rondo, Gay, uh, Kufis, um, Bellinelli, you know, uh, Collison. You know, those aren't. Um, you know, that's it's not a young and up-and-coming team. I know that Demarcus is still in the prime of his career and everything. So it's a mixed bag of, of of players. So whoever comes in, if it's a Kevin McHale or if it's a Patrick Ewing and everything, is that. You know that that coach is going to have to have some type of role as far as the personnel, as far as what they do come free agency, because they need they need to have that player or you know draft pick kind of fit their style and everything. You know, George Carl, he made plenty of mistakes while he was coaching there, but he did that interview with the Sacramento Bee recently, and and one of the things that I think he's dead on about is that the coach has to get the full throated support of management and ownership, and if you don't have that, there's no way you can survive. And I'm not saying that's the only reason that George Carl isn't there. But it's a big reason why George Carl is in there. You, you have no chance. You have no chance if you don't have management in your back corner and, and, and supporting you to ownership, uh, working hand-in-hand with you, kind of letting you go and let you do your own thing. Um, it's, a, it's an uphill battle. Uh, all year and everything, you're constantly looking over your, over your shoulder, and the, the good organizations have that um, as far as a working relationship. We've seen it in, in San Antonio with R.C. Buford and, and Pop. We've seen it... Um, you know, other places, um, Miami with their expulsion, Pat Riley. So you, you've got to have somewhat of a hands-off approach um, when it when it comes to the, the coaching element of it. Um, and they got to kind of be, you know, arm-in-arm arm here. Ken Cannonella, the newest executive in Sacramento, I didn't know much about him when they hired him. What's the book on him? Well, I worked with him in, uh, in, in New, when we were in New Jersey and uh, for about a year. Uh, smart kid. Um, Worked in the league office to you know, help them develop their contract management system and, and some of their their new stats. Uh, he'll be good out there. Kind of brings some structure to that front office. Um, more of a liaison from a from a cap standpoint that Vlade can lean on. Um, you know, going forward as far as some of the rules and regulations, roster building. Um, and he'll be good because what what Sacramento needs is you know more of some some structure in that front office. All right, down a little further south, Lakers. They hire Luke Walton. Maybe not a surprise that they hired him, but that thing happened fast, man. They interviewed him, and they hired him like in the same day. 
Well, especially when you, you know, you know when they come fast, when the, the team issues the, the, the press release, and we all, you know, everyone kind of, you know, at the, in the middle, I think it was like at 10 o'clock at night and everything when it came out, and um, yeah, it did. You know, they've kind of, it looked like, you know, when they let Byron go, they identified who their number one guy, and that was Luke Walton, and, you know, you fly up to Oakland, and you, you kind of get a deal done right away, and I, you know, as much as we kind of, you know, kill, kill them sometimes, and rightfully so, you know, they handle this one the right way as far as, you know, you know, bef- you know, and I'm sure they knew who that person was when they let Byron go, that Luke was going to be their guy, and, and I don't think they would have done that if, if, if that was the other case. So, um, but I do like the hire, and I like, I like some of the things I've heard from him so far. He, he's realistic as far as what this roster is and what they can be going forward. Yeah, I, I like Luke Walton, too, and I thought he did a terrific job filling in for Steve Kerr. I just don't know. I don't know what he's about. I don't know if what his system is going to be. I don't know what he's going to be as a standalone. I mean, a year ago, he was the second assistant behind Alvin Gentry on that bench. Now he gets an opportunity to take over the defending champs. Does a great job. Don't get me wrong. Did a great job and deserved to officially be the co-coach of the year, not just have Steve kind of point it out every chance that he gets, which I, I admire Steve for doing, but... I, you know, he's a young guy, and that's a tough situation, man. That's a team that's not going to be good for a while, and, and they have to come to grips with that. Well, there's going to be some growing pains, and the seat gets a little bit warmer when you move over one in one, one seat and everything. And I know we there was a body of work this year in, in Golden State, but, that, I mean, we look at that Warrior team and how that's put together, and, um, you know, that's a, as good of a team we'll see in a long time. So it is a – I think if, if you're realistic, what you can do going forward um, as far as with this roster. And, yeah, it is a major, major rebuild with the young players, what you can do cap-wise. I don't know how much of a draw he will be, you know, come come free agency. I think the one thing that might help is that there's some stability with the head coach now going forward, and, you know, he's going to be there for the, for the long haul and everything. So it will be interesting to see what kind of style. I know he's already come out and said that, you know, the triangle is not going to be something that he's going to focus on and that he's going to kind of have his fingerprints on things. So, um but to think that you know him getting hired automatically gets them back in the, in the playoff race, you know, as we have we seen, you know, players do that, not not coaches. Man, I tell you what, the most sought after coaching position might be the seat that Luke Walton is giving up because <laughs> in the last two years, you've got two guys going on to head coaching jobs, and you know that next year. That team's going to be great no matter what. Your stock is going to be skyrocketing no matter what if you're sitting on on the bench alongside Steve Kerr. Well, they've kind of turned into San Antonio as far as how they're kind of pumping out guys with, um, you know, they're they're almost like the Spurs with how they do with their management group as far as, you know, we've seen a great tree of, of, of player of, co- of management, you know, Danny Ferry. We've seen now Scott Layden, um, Rob Hennigan, you know, the whole group there. And now we're seeing in Golden State from a coaching aspect that, you know, that – that um, you know the, the results there, and that's usually what happens when you have good results or great results on the court. It's a it's a reflection on on your staff, and, and, and good things happen to them. I tell you what, if I'm David Blatt, I go running towards that <laughs> assistant coaching position. That was going to be his before. You know, he was going to take on that assistant job. But then the Cleveland opportunity came along. He took that gig, and we all saw how that worked out. If I'm Blatt, you know, forget the Sacramento head coaching job. Forget the Knicks head coaching job. Take a step back and go be Steve Kerr's assistant. Make a million dollars a year. Be Steve Kerr's assistant and get better as a coach and, and have success over the next couple of years. Because if David Blatt, and I don't even know if he gets these jobs, but if David Blatt winds up in Sacramento or New York, that doesn't end well. That's not going to be a good situation for him to land in fresh off of Cleveland. 
Well, I, I look at it, and not not just from a coaching standpoint, but from a management standpoint. And, and I, and, you know, when I, whenever I talk to coaches or you know GMs in the league, they say, "Well, there's only one one of thirty of us, and everything." And and I, I totally understand that. But for like a David Blot or somebody who is, you know, unemployed and is you know did not end well somewhere else, I, I look at it. You, you know, you've got basically one bullet in the gun here, and where you pick your your next. Um, opportunities better be the right one and to go to another place like Sacramento or New York and if it doesn't work out I don't know if he'll ever get a job again so you've got to really pick your spots right and if it's if it makes sense to go the assistant route and you're on you're on a bigger platform if it's in Golden State or San Antonio or Miami some of these other places that's almost more appealing than than being maybe in Sacramento or New York yeah just have some positive experiences being on the bench. Like he had to put on a helmet and go to war every day <laughs> in Cleveland, New York. That would be bad. I mean, they're not going to be good next year anyway. And it's a lot. Of, it's been 15 years of drama with the Knicks. Sacramento, I, I, I don't know how he mixes with DeMarcus Cousins. And for me, with the Kings, the one thing about them, lastly about them, is if I'm a coach with some options out there, or if I'm any coach really, I want to see them do things. They may fire their next coach. But do things properly. Give that coach support for a few years. See how it works out. If it doesn't, okay, it's a results-oriented business. I get it. But if it's the same thing that George had to deal with, there's no sense taking that job. It's a no, a no-win scenario. Well, what you have to do is, and if, if kind of missed the boat on this, is when when you know, and I say this for any new owner coming into the league. Study the good teams that have won championships and, and, and see how they've done it from an ownership standpoint and, and just give it a shot. You know, give, follow the blueprint if it's in Miami or San, you know, some of these other places, San Antonio, we could say. Um, you know, look what they've done as far as from an ownership standpoint and, and how they've kind of constructed their front office coaching and, and kind of, you know, go there and, and how the process works and how they let their, their, their management people pick the right you know, players to let their coaches coach and everything, and, and go and follow that route. And if it if it doesn't work, then yeah, then maybe you can step in and 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 and, and try to you know get get involved. But you know, with Sacramento, it's like kind of they're working backwards here with with that, where they've you know the the owner can say, oh, I'm not involved in everything. But well, what happens when you get off to four and fourteen and you're sitting in the front row and you're watching the product and everything? How how long, how much longer can you show restraint and everything? So that that's going to be the big question there. Well, Bobby, as always, I appreciate it. I'm sure we'll talk again in a few weeks, and uh, we'll still be discussing about who Sacramento is going to hire and who the New York <laughs> Knicks are going to hire. Sounds good, Chris. Thanks, Bobby. Appreciate it, man. See ya. Talk to you soon. It's the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. All right, welcome back. The Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. I am pleased to be joined by a eight-year NBA veteran, a member of the Sacramento Kings last year, Costa Kufos. And Costa's played for a handful of NBA teams, been traded a few times, but I would bet he would admit that last season was maybe his craziest season to date. Costa, what would you say to that? Is that accurate? Last season, your craziest to date? Yeah, I mean, you could say that. You know, I've been uh, very lucky to be in the playoffs for seven years in a row before that. And, uh, you know, I think crazy is the extreme. You know, there are a lot of ups and downs, like most teams go through. But, you know, the guys, you know, we banded together. We continue to fight hard. We worked hard every day. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, sometimes, some days, some games just don't go your way. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of great guys we worked out with. So, I mean, it's we made the best of what we could, and we, and we ran with it. You were a guy that, that George Carl had a lot of respect for, going back to your days in Denver. He wanted you 
in Sacramento. What is it about you and George that about your relationship that makes it work so well? You know, I mean, I, I played with him previously in Denver, like you said. You know, we've had a lot of success on those Denver teams. And uh, one of those things that, you know, I'm one of those guys that just, you know, whatever whatever I'm asked to do, I just do my best, do my best ability. Um, and, and, like, no-nonsense, guys. And, uh, you know, George, I got the utmost respect for George. You know, he's a Hall of Fame coach, and uh, he knows what he's doing. It's just one of those things that where it's a business. And, uh, you know, you turn the page, move on to the next chapter. He strikes me as one of the more blunt coaches in the NBA. Would you say that? Um, you know, it's his coaching style. You know, he knows he knows the game. He loves the game. He has a passion for the game. And uh, one of those things as a player, you know, it's about being professional. You know, each coach has a different coaching style, and you know, each player has to learn how to adapt to each coach. And uh, you know, George does what he what he needs to do, what he feels like the right way, and I respect that. You were one of those guys came into the NBA back in what 2009, 2010 out of uh, Ohio State. I'm curious about your journey to getting to kind of this point. Like what was it that got you into basketball growing up in where the Ohio area, right? What got you into the game? Well, you know, I always had a passion for the game. I used to watch, you know, the Bulls on TV back in the day. Not saying they're my favorite team, but you know, just just watching that and uh you know, and also my father passing away when I was 9 years old it was it was it was a, it was a positive outlet for me and uh you know, I just worked on my game every single day, and even at a young age, and I just had a passion for it. Just like now, you know, I still love the game, and uh, you know, it's something that's that was so unique about the game. You can always improve, and uh, you know, I like that feeling of you know, there's always there's always something you can work on to continue to get better at the game. In what way was your father passing an outlet? What was basketball an outlet for that? You know, it's it's just you know, instead of turning something into negative, you know, I turn it into a positive. You know. You know, it was definitely an upsetting time for the family. You know, every family goes through things. And, uh, you know, for me, you know, it helped me, you know, helped me with that process of him passing away. You know, it helped me. You know, he was such a great man. and He was a pediatric oncologist. And uh, he did a lot for the community at Akron Children's Hospital. And I was very fortunate, you know, to have him as a father. And, uh, you know, when he was gone, you know, it was tough for us. You know, and the game of basketball helped me, you know, you know, cope with, 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 with the death of my father. And, you know, it, and it translated to, you know, the NBA one day. So, I, you know, I never thought I was going to be in the NBA, but I continued to work at it, and guys blessed me with the height. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate with, with the gifts I was given. You were, went to Ohio State, and you actually replaced Greg Oden there at center, right? Yeah. I mean, Greg, I mean, Greg was phenomenal when he played. You know, we were two different types of players. You know, I was you know, more of a face-up guy running the rim and shoot and, you know, post up occasionally. And he was, you know, back to the basket. And, you know, it, you know, and I got the utmost respect for Greg. You know, he, in my opinion, you know, besides injuries, he would have been one of the better big men in the league. And well, was it extra pressure, you know, stepping in, not only to for a guy like Odin, but also a team that had so much success with Greg, with Mike Conley the year before? No, not at all. You know, I'm a competitor, and, you know, I don't feel – I don't – I'm not going to say, you know, you'll feel pressure, but the thing is, though, coming in, you know, I, that was not in my mind at all. I was coming in with a great group of guys, you know, with Dallas Lauderdale, Evan Turner, John Diebler, and so forth. And, you know, it's we knew each other coming in, and, you know, we didn't have that mindset of, oh, we got to do this, we got to do that. You know, we had the mindset of, you know, continue continue to work hard, enjoy the game, and do what we can when we can. Do people, do they forget just how good Greg Oden was back then? Now he's just the injury guy. But Greg Oden, when he was playing, he was damn good. Oh, he definitely was phenomenal. And you know what? What set him apart from other players, though, is, is how how good of a person he is off the court. You know, and 
know, him, even my team, my, my teammate Mike Connolly in Memphis, you know, they're just, just good guys and good people to be around with. Did you ever, I don't know whether it was high school or scrimmaging at Ohio State, did you ever play against Odin? Yeah, I did play against Odin a couple of times, and, uh, you know, it was fun. You know, I definitely learned a lot from him. You know, he was definitely very strong and, you know, very, very powerful and very explosive. Um, you know, you know, fortunately, you know, <laughs> you know, a good thing I'm tall too. I can run the core as well. And, you know, it was a competitive, it was a competitive open gym. Costa, hang tight for just a second, because I know, you know, that as an established NBA player, you don't have to worry about getting a good seat for games, but obviously not everybody is so lucky. It can be really tough getting a seat to a game or a concert that's in town, especially for a good price. That's why the best place to go when you need tickets is SeatGeek. I'm telling you, it's the only place I ever go to buy tickets to a game or a concert. You'd be crazy not to try it. They make it so easy. I mean, there's virtually no hassle in getting the exact seats that you want. And it's pretty cool how they do it. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events, and they'll let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is ranked based on value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. See what I mean? Easy and painless. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I use it all the time because it's simple and because it works. Oh, and best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. They show you the full ticket price from start to finish and never try to trick you with huge fees on the checkout page. Now, pay attention to this part because it's really important. My listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's 20 bucks right in your pocket. And to get it, all you have to do is this. Download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, then enter promo code MANIX. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It doesn't get any easier. So support them like they support this podcast. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code MANIX today. You're listening to the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. You um, decided to go into the NBA draft in 2008. One of the things that was reported back at the time was that you were close to maybe signing with a Greek basketball club at one point. How close were you to playing overseas instead of the NBA? You know, I was very close out of high school. You know, I got a very lucrative deal coming out of high school, which was, you know, truly a blessing. But at the same time, though, I had an obligation with Ohio State, you know, and I gave him a verbal commitment, and I wanted to to fulfill my commitment to Ohio State. And also being able to play in college and play in Ohio State in my hometown, you know, it, it, it was definitely a blessing. How hard was it, though, to turn down that kind of money coming out of high school? Um, you know, it, you know, it was tough. You know, being you know eighteen years old and you know having having that contract in front of you. But you know, it's just one of those things that you have to think long term. You know, which route would I would would I benefit long term? And the route of going to college for a year, developing, and then going to the NBA. You know, that was that was the better route long term. Uh, your family did they want you to do one thing or the other? Go overseas? Go to college? What was their what were their no. thoughts? You know, for us, you know, it's you know the the money aspect is great, but it's not it's not a priority for us. You know, I was raised, I was very lucky to be raised right by my mother and father before he passed. And uh, you know, for us, you know, it's it's about you know being healthy, enjoying your life, working hard, and, and just having fun. And I felt like this path going to college first, and then developing and going to the NBA was a better route for me because it was my dream always to play in the NBA. You stayed at Ohio State for just that, played just that one year. Why did you decide to leave after the one year? One of those things that you know, you know, I did pretty well my first year, fourteen, whatever it was, seven, and you know, played very efficient. And uh, 
you know, the, the opportunity is there, you know, you have to go, you know, you, you can't, you can't take a risk. You know, I, I enjoy my time at Ohio State. You know, I'm always, always, you know, and I was very lucky to have, have those teammates around me. And, uh, you know, that opportunity is there, you know, you can't risk any injury and, you know, people in your shoes, you know, they, everybody would do the same thing you would do with people in your shoes when you had an opportunity to go first round. How do you evaluate, though, when is the right time to go? Because you, you were drafted 23rd that year. Did you think you were going to go even higher? Did you expect to go kind of in that area? You know, you know I think I was projected lottery, but it was one of those things that, you know, you know things happen for a reason, and uh, you make the best of it. You know, I feel like I've made the best of it, definitely, especially being going in my ninth year in the NBA. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you can't, you can't look at, you know, if I did this right or did this wrong, you know, you, you choose a path, you go with it and you do your best in that path you, you, uh, you maintain with. There's so much talk about what the age minimum is going to look like in a couple of years, you know, mostly in football, but how, do you, can you get away with paying college players something you know, to support them a little bit more? Yeah. What's your position on all that? You know, for college athletes, in regards to college athletes being paid, yeah. You know, I, I mean, everybody has a different viewpoint on it. You know, me personally, I'm I'm biased. You know, because I've been a college athlete. You know, I've, you know, it's very hard to the education, even though you do get a free education. You know, at the same time, though, it's it's a lot of work. You know, athletes bring a lot of money to the organization, and uh, you know, do I do I think it's it's wrong for athletes to get paid millions of dollars in college level for sure? But do I feel like you know they can get some form of compensation? I'm not against it. When Shabazz Napier came into the draft, he had some kind of line. I'm paraphrasing, like now I can, you know, I can afford to eat now, or something. He said after the championship game for for UConn. Did you ever have any of those kind of struggles where it was really tight with money during your year? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I had I had a lot of moments. You know, especially I was one of the very fortunate to have to have an old old beat up the old beat up SUV. And, uh, <laughs> You know, my teammates would use it sometimes too, and you know, sometimes I didn't have enough money to go back home with gas. So I had a, I had a, <laughs> I mean, I lived two hours away because I lived in Canton, Ohio. But I had to be, I had to be careful what I ate. You know, I always ate in the cafeteria, cafeteria because we were given a certain amount of swipes per per month for the cafeteria downstairs. So I had to be very frugal, very careful where I went, and, and made sure I had enough gas to get back home. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever run out of you gas know, I, and not have any money? I've been very lucky. No, I've been, <laughs> did you ever come close? Uh, I've had my moments on the highway, but you know, it's it's one of. Those, have you seen the Seinfeld episode? Yes. Basically, with the uh, yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I, the only thing that I kept replaying in my mind was that Seinfeld episode. So I still made it. So thank God. <laughs> so you've you've been you've been running with the the needle on E before, is what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I, the food thing drives me a little a little crazy, just because you know athletes should at the very least be able to have unlimited supply of food from the the cafeteria, shouldn't they? Exactly, and you know we were we had a certain amount of swipes. So basically, swipes is you know every time you come in come in the cafeteria, you can swipe it one time and right. pay for your food. And the scholarship is that's part of the scholarship at Ohio State. But we're given a certain amount of swipes, but I was, we were very fortunate enough to have you know, enough swipes to get by for the month. But, you know, I do respect the fact that, you know, you see it with athletes not having enough money to for food or stuff like that. You know, look at the Fab Five, they, that, that series where, you know, they talk about, you know, not having enough money to eat and stuff like that. You know, each athlete has a different scenario, but 
you know, I, I do believe in, you know, players in college, collegiate athletes, you know, getting some form of compensation. Yeah, Not I mean, saying they should get millions of dollars, but they should get some more form of compensation. Yeah, sure. that, that to me is crazy that there's a, a certain amount of swipes. There should be whatever swipes you need to eat. I mean, most athletes are big, strong guys. You're a seven-footer in college. you got to eat more than the average person, and you're working out at strange hours of the day. Right, yeah, but I'm not saying – but we also we also had enough swipes, though, per month, too. Mm. You know, we you know none of us had no swipes left over. You know, there were some months where I had like fifteen extra swipes, where I would just you know get people and swipe their food for them. You know, find a homeless person and whatever, swipe them and stuff like that. But you know, we were, we were fortunate enough to have enough swipes where we could eat in the same place consistently and and not worry about being hungry. Did you ever trade a swipe of your food card for a swipe of somebody's gas card? <laughs> no, that's actually a good idea. I should have done something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I didn't have that. I didn't didn't think about that. I was 18 years old. I wasn't. I wasn't. I was thinking about going to class and making class on time, and then doing well in the game. <laughs> Coach, to hang tight for just one more second here, because I want to tell my listeners about Wix.com. A great business needs a stunning website, and with Wix.com, you can do it all by yourself. Wix.com makes it easy to look amazing online, no matter what type of business that you're in. Show off your images in a beautiful gallery, grow your contact list, and get all your social media in one place, just the way you want. Your customers are going to love it. So what are you waiting for? Show the world what you can do today. Go to Wix.com and create your stunning website today. It's easy, and it's free. You're listening to the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. So you get to the NBA. Was it what you expected, whether physicality, uh, skill level? What was your first year like? Um, I think the first first feeling when I stepped on the court was, you know, how surreal it was. You know, still to this day, you know, there are games where I, you know, be on the court, I'm like, you know, like, oh, holy shit, you know, I'm in the NBA, you know, I'm sorry for cursing, but... You know, it's it's surreal. You know, it's surreal even to this day. And you know, I take it. I don't take it for granted. It's been a blessing. You know, and to be able to work out for for a living is is unbelievable. To play the game of basketball for a living is still to this day. It's truly a blessing. What was kind of your welcome to the NBA moment? Whether getting dunked on, you know, so pushed around. What was that moment for you? I think basically, uh, I, I mean, I, I was part of Utah Jazz. You know, that was a great group of guys. And I was a young guy on that experience team, especially with Jerry Sloan. Definitely old school mentality. And, uh, you know, as a Hall of Fame coach, so I learned a lot from them. But basically, uh, you know, some of the rookie duties, you know, they'll kick the ball in the stands, I'll go get it. They get the balls in the stands, I push around, stuff like that. And I was just, and I just became smart. I waited till the guys left, and I had the security guard tell me, <laughs> get all the balls that were kicked in the stands and shoot her out. <laughs> so they would go through shoot around and drop kick all the balls into the stands and tell you to go get them. Yeah, I mean, but basically that was like for the first week, and yeah. after a while you don't show it, and you just say okay, whatever, and then they stop doing it after a week. So, <laughs> <laughs> who was the worst hazer on that team? I don't. Oh man, that's a good question. I wouldn't say there's a specific person. You know, that group was really awesome. You know, with Darren Williams and C.J. Miles and Ronnie Brewer and Kalinko and Boozer and Memmicker. You know, each one, you know, like like even like Matt Harper used to make me get a USA Today for his, you know, for for him. And then I was I was freaking out one day basically because USA Today there's only one paper for the weekend. Am I correct? Uh, yeah, Friday, Saturday, yeah. Sunday. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was freaking out because I got I got the paper on Saturday and then I thought there was supposed to be a paper on Sunday because I was 18 years old, so I didn't know. 
And Matt was laughing because basically I didn't know that there's only one paper for the weekend. So I was, <laughs> so I was frantic, like you're trying to go everywhere, trying to find the paper on the Sunday's paper. But it was just for the whole weekend. Didn't anybody at these stores tell you? Didn't they tell you, like, hey, did you ask for, like, the weekend paper? Didn't they tell you there is only one? No, they didn't tell me. I Googled it afterwards. I was like, <laughs> oh, man. But that's, you have lesson learned, lesson learned. That's you being 18, 19 years old in the NBA in the first week, not knowing anything. Then now you, you learn quick. <laughs> What was uh, Jerry Sloan like to play for? Definitely hard nose. Um, definitely very old school, and um, you know he, he had a lot of uh, you know he had a lot of lot of good knowledge about the game. You know he played the game, legend Chicago, and uh, just one of those things about being tough and being, having that that grit, that grit towards the game, and uh, you know that actually helped me translate to where I'm at right now with you know playing hard, being mentally tough, and, and uh, you know not taking any possessions off. Was he a a yeller at practice? Not really. I mean, I think he, to get his point across, yell when he needs to yell, but, you know, definitely he would, uh, definitely, definitely would, would yell when he wanted, when he needed to yell, but it wasn't, wasn't all the time. How much did you get yelled at? Um, I didn't get yelled at that much. You know, being the rookie, you know, yeah, you're going to have the, uh, you know, the name calling or whatever it is, the rookie hazing, but, you know, it wasn't that bad. You know, I was always the first in the gym, last to leave, always working on my game. So it wasn't, I, we, it was no issue at all. You know, I've asked a few guys that have done this podcast before, guys that have been traded a few times, just about sort of how they deal with it and, and what their experiences have been like. I mean, you've been traded a few times in your career. How how difficult is it to hear that, you know, you've been traded? It's not For me, it's not difficult at all. I view it as a new experience, you know, a new city and a new chapter. You know, clean slate, start off new, start off fresh, and uh you do what you can when you can, and it's just one of those things that you know it's part of the business. And once you understand that, you know it's it's a smoother transition. You know, after the first trade, you know it was you know it was it was, it was a little difficult, but once I got traded the Nuggets, you know that was that was one of the best things that happened to me getting traded the Nuggets, especially career wise. When you get traded, who's the one that tells you? Is it the GM? Is it the coach? What do you, what were those experiences like? Just being told. Yeah, it's a combination. You know, the agent, obviously, the agent with Mark Turney, and you, they, would, they would call you and you know notify you. It's like, okay, cool. You know, pack up your things and move on. And uh, the GM usually calls you to say, hey, you know, this is what we're doing and why. And it's just like, okay, you know, I respect it. It's a business, you know, and it, you know, it, it is what it is. And you know, I wish you the best, and you move on to the next team. So you've never found out about a trade involving you on like social media. Not yet. No, not yet. I mean, if it happens, it happens. It's not going to bother me one bit. Yeah. The the favorite team that you played on? The favorite team? I have a couple, actually. Um, you know, when I was in the Nuggets, we had the 57 wins. Uh, we had, like, the most wins in, in the home, at home in history, in Nuggets history, and then the most, the best record in Nuggets history. That team was, that was pretty cool. Uh, especially not having a legit superstar on the team, but a bunch of very talented guys that worked together and worked hard. And then uh, last year, the Memphis Grizzlies, too. I mean, I learned a lot from Zebo and Mark. And, uh, you know, the way they are and they're very, they're, the way they work and their work ethic and stuff, you know, it's pretty pretty cool Like to, to be around those guys, especially like guys like Tony Allen as well. Yeah, Memphis is like a throwback team, aren't they? Just everyone else is sort of transitioning to this small ball type of play, and, and Memphis still beats you up when they're healthy with, with Zach and, uh, and with Mark. Definitely, and you know, especially when I was there too. You know, it was a, you know definitely was a good learning experience, especially learning from Mark and Zebo. What is it about Zebo? Like he doesn't jump, he can't jump over a phone book, but he still is the most effective low post player maybe in basketball. What is it that makes him special? 
just so efficient with his movement. You know, he's, he's such a good guy. He works on his game. And, you know, he's going to get 20 to 10 every game be, being efficient. You know, he, he doesn't take any, you know, we, we call it negative steps. You know, he he's always efficient with every step he takes. You know, he uses his body very well, very aggressive. And he, and he doesn't, and he, and he fights every possession. You went to, uh, when you go to Sacramento, obviously George wanted you there, and you could obviously bring something to the table with that team. You know, your interactions with DeMarcus, what were they like last season? DeMarcus is a really good, good, good guy. You know, he's so talented. You know, he can do it all. You bring down the bring the ball down the court, he can post you up. You know, and unfortunately, you know, with, with all the talent we have on this team, with everybody who wants for 15, it just didn't, just didn't uh, mesh well this season. But, you know, that's, that's, part of, that's part of the game, and one of those things, you know, you make changes when you need to make changes and, and so forth. It's part of the business. Why do you think it didn't work, or at least the chemistry didn't work between George and DeMarcus? Just because George has coached a lot of guys with, you know, they quote combustibility before, dating back to Gary Payton, really. Why do you think it didn't work the same way with George and DeMarcus? Basically, it probably was a combination of, of you know, from player to coach standpoint. But, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you know, maybe you have too much talent or not the right right amount of players and they're in the right right amount of position. So it's a combination of everything, basically, when it comes to coaches and players. So it's just, you know, you have to find the right mix. And uh, once you find the right mix, you run with it and you go with it. George was saying recently over the weekend, he talked to the Sacramento Bee and said he didn't feel like, like he was supported by the front office there last year. From your own observations, what did you see with, with respect to George in the front office? You know, for me, I, my my thing is, you know, ignorance is bliss. You know, I you don't feed into that kind of stuff, you know, off the court. For me, I was just, you know, working on my game, and you know, I really wouldn't read the papers and stuff like that. And you know, I'd find out from other people, from fans, would tell me from a, from an organization standpoint. And you know, it's one of the things as a player, you just do one year off the other and do what you can when you can, and being professional. George has obviously battled through a lot over the years, multiple bouts with cancer being at the forefront of it. Did did he seem like the same coach this year that he was when you played for him in Denver? You know, when he was uh, when he was in Denver too, he was you know he was considered a, uh, a, a you know a player's coach. You know, he was low key. You know, he just you know he spoke when he needed to speak, and uh, you know basically had the same mannerisms transitioning to Sacramento. You know, him going going through all this treatment and stuff. You know, you got to respect you know. What he's been through, you know, you don't you don't know the off court issues 100 percent with with his with his health, and you know sometimes you know some days you would you know you, it would appear you know health wise you know maybe he wasn't maybe 100 percent health wise, but you know you have to respect you know he's a fighter, he loves the game of basketball, he came every day to work with the coaching staff. Uh you've been in the game a pretty good amount of time now. What eight teams you've played for? What's the goal for you in the uh, over the next half of your career? You know, be basically do what I can. You know, um, you know, elevate my game offensively, defensively, keep my body in shape, and you know, play as long as I can. You know, it's one of those things that you know I can do a lot for an organization, a lot for a team, whether it's protecting the rim, screen, roll, shoot, defend. You know, in uh, you know whatever team I'm on, or if it's if it's Sacramento or another organization, you know, you just it's all about being professional and you know still stay in love with, love with the game, and that's one of the biggest things is you know having fun and that's what I've been doing and you know every single day I wake up and I enjoy what I do is it harder to be a big man in today's game it seems like everybody wants to play small and if you're a big man I mean most days you'd want to be able to shoot threes in today's league no it's, it's for me it's not really 
it's not really a, a big deal. You know, it's, it's, you just have to adjust. You know, I've been very fortunate I can get up and down the court very well, you know, stick with screens and roll. And there's, there's ways, there's ways to adapt to the game, especially the game is changing right now. It's going more up and down and you're going to find that you're going to have six foot eight centers one day, possibly. And, uh, <laughs> you just, you just adapt to it. You know, you, you play, you play, you do what you, you can't win. You can't, like I said many times before in this interview. And, you know, you continue working the game and you translate it to the core, whether, you know, it's be more efficient shooting and, or running or, or whatever it may be. Who's the best center you've ever gone against? I don't, I can't pinpoint a, a single best center, but you know I've played with a lot of talented centers. You know, uh, Marcus Sewell, obviously. You know, Demarcus Cousins definitely <laughs> his his numbers speak for itself. Um, you know, I I you know played guys against the prime like Amari Stoudemire, you know, power forward, just stuff like that. You know, I've been Yao Ming, Shaq, and those guys. You know, guarding those guys is pretty cool. You know, it's definitely surreal to think about. You know basically guarding those guys, you know, you grow up in middle school watching those guys on TV and you have the ability to guard them when you get older. It's pretty pretty surreal. Now, what was your first game against Shaq like? I was when he was in Phoenix, and uh, <laughs> it was tough. It was tough. He's a big guy. So, I mean, uh, you know, the only thing I did, you got too close to the rim, you try to foul him as best you can, and <laughs> you, you try to beat him down the court when you can. Yeah, as a big man, would you like to see the rules over hack a, you know, insert player here, Andre Drummond, DeAndre Jordan, would you like to see the rules changed? I mean, the rules are the rules right now. You know, I mean, players, you know, who can't make free throws, you just learn how to adjust and try your best to make the free throw. You know, right now it's it's all about strategy and, you know, I expect the game, the way the rules are set up right now, I'm sure they'll make changes every year, which they do, and you just learn how to adapt to when the rules are changed. But should they be changed? I have no, I have no issue with the rules. I was under under two minutes. You can't foul or whatever it is, and you get technical. Am I correct? Yeah, you get said it's two in the ball. I think. Right. So I mean, the rules are the rules right now. I have, I have no issue with any of the rules they set. Well, Coast, I appreciate the time. Good luck next yeah. year, whether in Sacramento or otherwise. And uh, thanks for taking some time to come on the podcast. Appreciate you having me on. Have a great day. You too. That's it for this week's episode. I want to thank my guests Bobby Marks and Costa Kufos. And don't forget, you can download this podcast as well as the Vertical Podcast with Woj and the Vertical Podcast with J.J. Redick on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, really anywhere you can download podcasts. We'll see you next week. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. We did, but honestly, I was left with more questions than answers, Tony. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. And I'm Michael Costa, comedian from The Daily Show. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1. Our F1 102, if you will. And get all of the answers. All of them? Listen to Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julian Edelman from Games With Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time with the players and coaches who lived in them. 
Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Or what about the, the after parties? We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games with Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali in 1988, and surprisingly, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.